Hello and welcome to Wine Blast with me, Susie Barry, and my husband and fellow Master of Wine, Peter Richards. And today we're going to be heading off to Hollywood via California. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? It's fair to say. I mean, it's, 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 we're definitely going to be having a bit of fun with wine movies and wine movie moments. But, and not just Hollywood, it has to be said, mm-hmm. that's important. Um, but I think we're going to leave that for a bit later on in the programme. And first off, we're going to head to Napa, aren't we? We are indeed, yep. Mm. So it doesn't really need repeating, but 2020 has been quite the year for wine as much as anything. Um, The coronavirus pandemic has hit many wine nations pretty hard, most notably South Africa, where where producers lost millions after wine exports and sales were temporarily banned by the government. Then there's been the imposition of punitive tariffs, which have severely disrupted trade. For example, um, US tariffs on French, German and Spanish wines, and now China acting against Australia. That's the last thing we needed, wasn't it? I, I mean, it was something like between 100 and 200% tariffs from the Chinese on Australian wines, and 40% of Australian wine exports go to China these days. I mean, that's, that's just I mean, it's crazy. Even the, the US Chinese going to buy Australian no, exactly. wines. Even, and... even the US tariffs of 25% yeah. is bad enough. Yeah, but, it is, it mm. is. And of course, on on a final note, Mother Nature hasn't always played ball this year. Um, the year started with rampant bushfires in Australia, which we uh, we did our mm. first program about, and ended with devastating wildfires in the US, particularly in California. Yeah. So our very first podcast, Series One, Episode One, was on Australia on fire, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, early twenty twenty, and now. We thought we should finish by going back to California, um, where we've been several times so yeah. far in, in Series 1, um, but to, to talk about the fires there. So the, the fires in California began in August and ran through to October. Um, by the end of September, 7.5 million acres, that's just over 3 million hectares, had burned in the US, around half of that in California. By mid-October, more than 5 million acres, that's just over 2 million hectares, have burned in California, Washington, Oregon. Uh, and apparently more than 30 wineries, restaurants and lodges were reported to have been demolished or damaged. This is all sourced from Wine Searcher, which has been doing some fantastic coverage. In Napa and Sonoma alone, 70,000 people were ordered to evacuate, including the whole town of Calistoga. And this um, sadly isn't a one-off. Apparently, a fire frequency and intensity has grown with damage, particularly to property, escalating Mm. all the time. Um, Where still human lives have been endangered um, and in some cases lost. And of course, you can add on to this the the spectre of climate change with one report stating that the rate of temperature change in California is now higher than it's been in the past thousand years. But it's not all doom and gloom, is it? Um, California and Napa remain our houses (laughs) of wine production, making finer wines than ever before, um, arguably in greater range and diversity of style than ever before. Absolutely. Um, There's plenty of adaptability built into the wine growing system uh, and there's no shortage of talent and ambition to make these things work, are there? Absolutely not. On on which point? Uh, One of the state's most historic and reputable wine producers is Chateau Montalina, a beautiful old stone winery right at the top of Napa Valley near the town of of Calistoga. Uh, It dates back to 1882, but it really shot to fame when its 1973 Chardonnay beat the iconic French classics in their own backyard at the Judgment of Paris in 1976, uh, with fellow Napa winery Stag's Leap wine cellars winning in the red category too. So Napa had finally, well, 
certainly arrived on the on the world wine stage quite by that moment, point. Quite made. a moment, wasn't it? Yeah, so the winery had been taken over by the Barrett family in the late 60s, hadn't it? With the emphasis very much on the kind of European style of age-worthy wine, focusing on Chardonnay and Cabernet. Um, and that ethos, I think it's fair to say, you know, is still in place to this day under current owner Bo Barrett and, and winemaker Matt Crafton, who, who you spoke to, didn't I you? I did. I chatted to Matt about, uh, well, all sorts, really, the fires, climate change, mm. their big replanting drive and, and sustainability in general. Um, I also did rather cheekily ask him about the film Bottle Shock. Couldn't <laughs> resist. Had to get it in. Couldn't resist. Um, which tells the story of the Judgment of Paris with a focus on Chateau Montalina and the Barrett family. Anyway, I, I started by asking him just to set the scene for us. So it's a, it's a beautiful December morning here at the northern end of Napa Valley. And for those of you that haven't visited Chateau Montalena before, we're located literally at the very top of the valley. So right where the two mountain ranges on the east and west flank meet at Mount St. Helena, that's where Montalena is. And um, it's a typical December morning here, uh, last night down uh, around freezing. So, you know, zero, negative one Celsius, uh, beautiful frost this morning and, and sunny skies. Okay, so... Just talking about this year, Matt, I mean, it's obviously been a tough year for everyone uh, all around the world, certainly in terms of in co- terms of COVID. But on top of that, California and, and where you are in, in Napa have suffered devastating wildfires. Can you tell us about those and how they've affected the, the Napa wine industry? It's been a challenge, especially given that it's occurred, you know, three of the four last year, last few years. And um I don't know. I think on some level we're getting more resilient. That's true. But this year it was particularly devastating given how early they occurred. So in 2017 and um, 2019, they typically, the fires that erupted were later in the growing season, some even post-harvest. This year was unique in that the first fires began in August, carried through September. And uh, for many wineries such as ours, we lost our entire uh, red wine grape harvest this year. You lost your, your whole harvest. We were able to harvest our Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc ahead of the fires. But, um, but no, yeah, no red wines will be made by us in 2020. I mean, I know that, that Chateau Montalena as well is the most beautiful grand stone building. Were you ever worried that was that ever under threat? It has been. And we have a fantastic team here of people who you know take care of the property all during the year to make sure it's as fire safe as possible. And we obviously have incredibly dedicated first responders and firefighters who are here and, and a really great community. So I think that concern is always there. And, and we're obviously, you know, most concerned about, you know, the sanctity of life more than anything else. But, uh, but yes, there were certainly times where uh, this this property, this building was under threat. And in terms of you going back to the, the vineyards, you've lost your red wine, uh, red wine harvest. Are you worried in any way about next year? You know, how does that affect the vines for the future vintages? That's a good question. Um, so there's a lot of research on this actually out of Australia. Uh, those poor folks have been dealing with wildfires and bushfires significantly longer than we have. And thankfully, as long as your vineyard doesn't physically burn, there are no lingering effects after a fire or smoke effect, smoke event. And so the reason you've lost yours then is to do with the the smoke taint? That, that's correct. So all of our Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, uh, Zinfandel Primitivo, all those wonderful, delicious scrapes where we're hanging out in, in this, you know, Blade Runner-esque atmosphere 
of smoke. And uh, we know just from research and understanding the mechanism for how everything works when it comes to the, you know, how the grapevines um, uh, process smoke and how that works its way through the vine itself, that there really isn't anything you can do to fix it. So so now that the, the immediate danger is over now, so the, the fires are out, um, I imagine in the short term, it's about a, a massive kind of cleanup operation and salvaging what people can from the 2020 harvest um, and keeping their their businesses afloat if they if they can but just looking at the longer term future for Napa in the face of what is obviously climate change um, I mean it's been said that the the rate of temperature change in California is is now at the highest it's been in a, a thousand years and then these wildfires that would normally happen maybe every six years are happening virtually six times a year you know how do you see the future for the region in that context? Well, that's, I wish I had a crystal ball and I'm, I'm not a climatologist or a meteorologist. So I'll just lay that out <laughs> there first and foremost. Um, I think, you know, what, what you've said is, is certainly, uh, I've heard it as well. And I think there, are, um, there tends to be a possibility to you know, oversimplify some of the situations to make them make the situation to make it digestible. I think we've got uh, a few variables at work here from what's going on uh, from a climate perspective, a weather perspective. There are also some um, forest management, major forest management issues in the state of California that I think contributed to this. And if you look at historically, if you talk to some of the the old timers who've been around in Northern California going back to the 40s and 50s and 60s, there were regular fires here. That's part of the landscape. It's part of the ecosystem here. And then when we stopped burning in the you know, 1960s, 1970s, and let all of that brush start to accumulate, those regular fires became obviously less regular. And then, but when they did occur, they were significantly more disastrous. So, you know, I think there's, I think there are a few things going on here, but I don't think that, um, I don't think there's literally a one silver bullet uh, to solve them. And I don't really think there's one explanation either. And, and Chateau Montalina and, and you as a winemaker, you are, you're known for your, your red wines made from Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, though, Ironically, it was the Chardonnay, wasn't it, that that won the the Judgment of Paris in 1976. Um, So looking at those two varietals in particular, I mean, recently people have started to question the the long-term viability. I mean, going back again to the the climate change issue is as the climate warms, things get gradually ever hotter – there's even talk I I read somewhere of them of, of getting off the Cabernet and Chardonnay train. What do you think about that? I think that makes for really good headlines. <laughs> um, so uh, sounded not, good to me. Right, right. I, I, I'm not concerned about Cabernet in the short term, and like I said, I, I'm certainly not a climatologist uh, at all. But what I can tell you is that if you look at you know Vitus vinifera, you know vines are survivors, and um, I think that we're not 100 percent sure how the any sort of climate changes are going to affect the Napa Valley directly. We have a very complicated and complex weather pattern here. Um, which is significant. I mean, significantly recognized in the fact that we can't predict the weather more than two days out. As we've been working on, you know, replanting our estate vineyard over the last few years, we've changed our row orientation to make sure that you know, during the hottest time of the year, the hottest part of the day, the sun shining down on top of our canopies instead of on the fruit itself. Um, we're investing more in technology to understand vine water status to help um, not only save water, but also improve quality. You know, there are lots of these, you know, small, I'd say, um, 
you know, viticultural practices that we could do. And then, you know, looking at more drought resistant rootstocks, those sorts of things, and then getting a better idea of, of again, the, the vine status during the growing season to understand ripeness a little better. And I'd say specifically for Montalena, I mean, one of the brilliant things about, you know, this winery specifically is that we're not really, we're not driven to create a wine of a very, you know, very specific profile. I mean, we create delicious, beautiful wines. That's really it. And so we're able to do that in a way where in some years we pick significantly earlier and some years we pick significantly later. And we were able to take advantage of those nuances of the growing season and creating something that's, you know, delicious and, and long lasting. So there's kind of a philosophical piece of that too. I mean, I'd love to just pick up on that actually, Matt, because I know that, you know, originally Jim Barrett's idea was to produce European style wines um, that are very drinkable and, and you know, age worthy, relatively lower in alcohol, you know, not your classic Na- Napa wines. And I know you're very keen to do that too. Just tell us a bit about how you would how you go about doing that because you are in actually the the warmer part of Napa, aren't you? So you know how do you go about creating those more elegant, refined, uh, if you like, old world style of wines? I think it's, I think it's first off, it's a, you have to think independently. Um, there's, uh, and I think you can probably speak to this as well as I can. It's very easy to stampede towards a certain style that happens to be in vogue right now. There happened, or maybe to, you know, someone's specific palate you're making wine towards. Uh, we don't, we don't fall into the, either of those two camps. Um, the Barretts who are wonderful owners have always treasured independent thought, creative people. And really the only directive we are given is to, you know, make something that's beautiful, make something that's delicious, and then also make something that's ageable. And I think if you, when you put on your winemaking hat and you look at kind of the, the left brain, sort of the, the analytical side, I guess, where you think about, well, what are the components that give wines the ability to age? We're talking about, you know, the acid levels, tannin, alcohol, all sorts of those things. Um, and then you have to put it together with that what right brain creativity. And when those two come together in a way with a fundamental understanding of how flavors develop over time, um, how textures develop, um, what's, what, what are specific piece of ground, what the potential is there, when you were able to combine all of those, you can create something that's really interesting and really exciting. And um, I'd say that if we had to put everything, you know, tie everything together with a bow, that pretty much encompasses it. I mean, um, we don't really have a style just kind of like, you know, when, um, uh, when Michelangelo was sculpting, he wasn't like saying, I want to, I want to make a, you know, sculpt a statue that looked like this. He just wanted to make something really beautiful and amazing. And he ended up sculpting like Michelangelo because you can't help not doing something that's like you if you focus on the end goal of making something really wonderful. And so that's really, I think, how we look at things. And and what are the specific, I mean, every winemaker has their challenges, every viticulturist. What would you say are the challenges where you are? Is it is it um, heat related? So you do tend to harvest a little bit earlier or, or, or you know, what what is, what, what would you say are your main challenges? So Calistoga is, is a really, it's a really wonderful place um, because we do see the, I say the, the, the hottest peak temperature during the day, but if you look at the amount of heat, you know, summed up and whether you use degree days or whatever units, we're actually not the warmest part of the Valley. Cause we actually see have the coldest nights as well. So we have this, uh, this incredible diurnal temperature swing. And so for us, it's understanding kind of to your point, the, the appropriate level of ripeness, you know, what really encapsulates 
uh, the, the overall theme and spirit of the vintage out in the field. That, that's the biggest creative challenge. Uh, you know, how do you take the entire year and distill it into a single glass of wine? And so, um, and then one, thankfully for us, those really incredibly cool nights uh, preserve the acid backbone that, that really helps significantly with the ageability piece. So now it's about understanding, you know, picking across these 80 acres, we'll do 40, 50 picks individually to come up with all of these different colors that we can then paint with in this really hopefully beautiful mosaic uh, in our Cabernet. And, and the same thing is true in our Chardonnay. And um, just moving on to um, sustainability, I know that's something that you're very, very keen on. Um, what are you doing uh, at Chateau Montalena to be more sustainable? It's funny, that's definitely a buzzword and it's gotten to be more trendy, but it's, it's really been part of our DNA since the very beginning. Uh, the Barretts have always embodied a philosophy of literally leave things better than how you found it. And that is, that, that's true across every piece of this company. So um, we were very early on, one of the first wineries to go 100% solar. Um, that's easy to check off uh, and easy to put on a piece of marketing material, but it, it really, it goes all the way down to like, you know, composting coffee grounds and, and everything in between. And so we've always looked at, you know, what is the right way and the best way to do this? Because we have two really important assets here. We have our people and we have our piece of ground. And, you know, my kids run through the vineyard, just like how our CEO, Bo Barrett, his kids ran through the vineyard. We want to make sure that this, that this vineyard is in wonderful shape and only continues to improve over time. And um, thankfully we have a, an amazing vineyard manager uh, who, uh, who also agrees with this. And I think as part of the Montalena team, you have, you have to really believe that. And so it extends, like I said, from wine production to the vineyard, all the way to the grounds crew, to the folks who are, um, who are, you know, serving our, our customers up in the tasting room. It's, it's not a, overt mission it's just this is how we operate so you're solar powered yes what what happens in the vineyard then so vineyard as i mentioned before we're looking at you know technological innovations that allow us to conserve water um, that's a really big one uh, we cover crop essentially all year round we don't use any synthetic fertilizers uh, the idea is that by having an a a microbiological understanding of what's going on below ground and by taking care of the soil, by feeding the soil, it's like a bank, right? So every year we make a withdrawal by taking our, our, the grapes off the vine. Well, we, make sure, we have to make sure we make deposits as well. And so we'll, we'll selectively tailor our cover crops year over year, depending upon the soil status of the vineyard. And uh, like I said, our vineyard manager does a great job with those things. So it's understanding that you have to invest and it's, and it's a, it's a philosophy and understanding that it's a, um, it's a, we're playing the long game here. We're not thinking about the next year or the next two years. We're talking about you know, some of the vineyards we're talking about replanting now, we won't see the fruit from those until 2030. So <laughs> who knows if any of us will be around at that point. <laughs> we but, may but, not, we may not. But what we're about, to do um, the right thing. just looking, I mean, one of the biggest problems with sustainability and with um, the environment, if you like, uh, the, the ca our carbon footprint is the, the weight of glass. And I know that Napa Valley bottles do tend to often be pretty heavy, chunky bottles. Are you looking at all to, to lower your glass weights? We've been on lightweight glass for 15 years. And so we use the absolute lightest bottle we can that has integrity. So if you go pick up a bottle of Montalena, you'll see it's a beautiful but simple 
champagne green, you know, claret bottle. It's not one of those big, massive ones. It feels like it's full when it's empty. No, again, this has been <laughs> always disappointing. Been, that's right. Isn't it? And so, but no, this is again, you, you, you brought up a great point. I mean, it's all of these little decisions over time. And so we, we always try to source California first, US second, North America third to minimize shipment time. And then the carbon footprint associated with that. It's all of these small decisions that we make that compound over time. And so, um, because what's, what really matters is what's in the bottle, right? I mean, that's it as long as it does. gets to you. And so that's, that's, that's a really great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Can I ask you something maybe slightly more frivolous? Um, there was a film Bottle Shock, wasn't there? There I was. Think it was. It had a good cast. Um, you know, Alan Rickman was in there. Yes, right. It wasn't, wasn't a great film. It was pretty panned. <laughs> um, and it, it, focused, it focused on the Barrett family. What, what did they think of it? I think going into this, they understood this wasn't a documentary. I think this was, we joke that it's like the, the mighty ducks go to Napa. And it was, um, I obviously wasn't there for the filming portion. I joined the winery literally right before they, they screened the film for the first time. But from what I understand, it was meant to be a fun film, somewhat fanciful with, I guess, the, the very rough basic framework Um carrying some truth. Uh, but I'll tell you what it did is that it, it certainly, um, it opened up the wine world and made it more accessible to a lot of people who normally wouldn't even have considered even thinking about Napa Valley. So from that standpoint, I think that introduction was a really good thing. So the Barretts were fine with the, with the film. They were happy with it. Were they? Oh yeah. I mean, Bo is played by Chris Pine. How could he not be happy about that? <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder, do you still get people coming? I, I, I imagine when I was watching, I was thinking, I wonder if people come and say, can I just try the Chardonnay, please? That's right. That's right. No, yeah, we absolutely do. And it's, it's great because people come from all walks of life. Some folks have been wine drinkers for years and years and years and have never made it to California or, hey, I don't drink Chardonnay at all, but I saw this movie and want to try yours. And we get lots of young people too, who happen to pull it up on Netflix or something like that. And you never know where it's going to go, but we've, we've built a lot of fans that way. Now, I'm going to ask you one last question. I think it's quite a difficult one um, for any wine lover. I would like you to, uh, to tell me what your, in this strange year that we're living in, what would be your ideal lockdown wine? And it can't be one of your own. Okay. And you, what, you'd like producer names or just regions or? I'd like, I'd love to know exactly what bottle you'd be pulling out. Okay. So um, I'll give you, how about I, if I give you a couple? Cause I, uh, we're going through a fair amount in our household these <laughs> days. <laughs> fair enough. So the first one would be uh, Champagne Bollinger Grand Onier. Um, and uh, that's a really beautiful, delicious wine. Uh, if I were going to pick Pinot Noir, possibly a wine from up in the Willamette, maybe something from like Ponzi or a good producer up there from Italy. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe Sandrone, uh, Brollo, something like that. I love, I love Nebbiolo. Um, really love Nebbiolo because I don't, I don't know how to make it. And I don't know anybody in California who does. And I think the last one would be maybe one of the Lalas uh, from Rhone from Gigal. So those would all be, those would all be high on the list. I might be coming and sharing your lockdown wines with you if that's okay. I'm not saying I have them. I'm just saying that's what I would drink. <laughs> Let's find available. them somewhere. <laughs> oh, Matt, thank you so much. That has been absolutely oh, brilliant. Welcome. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. 
Oh, I see. Okay, going off to share Matt's lockdown wines with him, are you? That's the way it is. Okay. They were good. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe you let him have more than one. That is totally against the rules. Well, I mean, that, is that favouritism? Nice. He was very nice. He was a very nice man, wasn't he? Um, but anyway, yeah. I mean, but um, but you, let's face it, you have to love his choices, don't you? They were pretty epic, I think. I mean, you know, well, you could say a lack of white, not, not so much white wine in there. But actually, yeah, I'm I mean, picking seriously. up on that and, and to move on. Um, shocking to hear that they're not going to be making any red wine at all in 2020, isn't it? I know, it? I know. I can't imagine I what that, what that does to a business. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. but I mean, I think probably not atypical for this particular No, vintage. you're right. I think there'll be a lot of people not making wines. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, it does rem- remind me actually of our, we talked about it earlier, the, the Australia on Fire episode two, season one, episode one, where we recommended the Clonakilla Shiraz, didn't we? And yeah. then we had to, and then, to, yeah, to, 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 to add the fact that they weren't going to make any wine at all in 2020. 2020, yeah, either. yeah, yeah. But you I see, mean, that's the thing about smoke taint. It can just mm. ruin a wine. And the worst thing about it is that it yeah. doesn't necessarily appear early on in the wine's life. It, it can it can be there in a sort of precursor form mm. and then only manifest itself once the wine is in bottle and shipped. And that's I mean, that's potentially a disaster, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, I think no, the, the decision not to bottle may be the right one, even if it's really, really hard. Mm, mm. And it can be a terrible decision to make because obviously massive financial implications. And sometimes the wine won't be showing these these characters when it's when it's young or before it's bottled, then no. suddenly it will in the bottle. So you've got to kind of say, I think this will, therefore... And yeah. Of course, you can analyse. Anyway, I mean, you know, it, it is shocking. And I think when he mentioned the whole kind of Blade Runner-esque Scenario that yeah. paints the picture really vividly, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Sort of devastating. I mean, apocalyptic. I think probably the words. You know. Anyway, uh, we really important to add. We wish all our Napa and California wine colleagues really well. I'm sure they'll prove resilient. Um, a word that Matt used and brilliant as ever. Uh, but now we're going to segue nice and neatly uh, from the world of Chateau Montalina and Napa into the world of film. Indeed, um, we are. You know, I guess Blade Runner doesn't count in this scenario. At least I might no. have to rewatch it just to check. But I don't think <laughs> why so. in Blade Runner as far as I'm not remember. sure. Yeah. Anyway, but we wanted to follow up on the theme of of bottle shock, mm-hmm. which uh, I asked Matt about, yeah. and which. We watched before I chatted to Matt. Did and, I make uh, you watch that or did you make me watch I, that? Ooh, I think it you might have mutual. made me watch it, okay. um, but we'd never actually seen it, no, um, no. remarkably. Um, and we weren't, to be fair, too wowed, were we? No. Really? No, I was asked this on Twitter and I said, I, my response was great cast, you know, great story, but just not a, not a great movie. It's just really <laughs> cheesy, actually. isn't it? You know, I, m- mainly because it was hampered by one hugely dodgy wig. <laughs> I mean, oh, would we yes. say that was a, a major barrier you to our... You have to watch this, to guys, because uh, honestly, that week. But really, important to say, yeah. you know, as Matt said, it is quite fun. Yeah, it? it is. And um, it clearly went down okay with Chateau Montalina. And, yeah. and it's brought lots of people into wine and the winery and Napa. Mm. So that's definitely a positive. Yeah, I mean, there's always a positive somewhere if you look hard enough. Um, you know, so this got us thinking, didn't it? What are, what are the really great wine films uh, or the wine moments in films? I mean, are so, there any really great? Well, that's, well that, was, that yeah. was the question, well, we'll wasn't come on it, to really? that, So, um, you know, I asked that question on Twitter. Um, and we got some responses, which we got here, haven't we? Now, we just have, to say, you know, initially we had a bit of a brain splurge and we said, what we come to, when you say wine movies or wine moments in movies, yeah. Bond obviously has Bond, to be in there. Bond came in, you you know, Silence of the Lambs Silence definitely of the was Lambs. on our list, um, wasn't it? Uh, Ratatouille was definitely on our list, but, yeah. you know, yeah. the kids we blame there. Uh, yeah. With Nell and I, we've we, got no one to blame but myself. <laughs> you could um, not. The Princess you Bride could... was an interesting one. Sort of, why, you know, I can't remember why the Princess a, Bride. There's a, there's a famous sort of scene with, has, you have to choose, so it's one glass of wine's poisoned and it has to choose. Which one? And it's, oh. it's very funny. Anyway, yeah. uh, a bit of fun. The Muppet, Muppet on, on that movie. Muppet movie. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, put the Muppet movie in I again. Did. I had no idea why. Um, but, um, but more seriously, sort of sour grapes. Yeah, uh, sour we did grapes. Enjoy that. Yeah, it's yeah, a Documentary, that was, uh, but it is yeah. uh, well worth watching. Yeah, definitely a great um, and then story. Some, isn't it? I think, was one we wa- 
watched. Um, yeah, um, yeah. It's been a few of those now, haven't there? Yeah. Um, but what about other people? Yeah. So okay. So the so suggestions came. Came. We had a lot. Learning him. Thank you, oh, everyone. It was really, really fun, and just what we needed. Uh, Matt Wilkin, uh, MS. Hi, Matt. You know, came in strongly by saying the Big Lebowski, uh, which puzzled me. Uh, he said, considering how much confusion and chaos 2020 has brought into our lives, I say white Russians qualify as pandemic wine. Now, <laughs> not black Russians. Given the amount of white, white Russians, Russians that, that Jeff Bridges drinks in that film, you know, I'd be worried, Matt. It's actually consumption. My mum, my mum always used to drink black Russians when, really? when yeah, 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 when I was young. Um, mm. I'm sorry, mum, I shouldn't have said that. Really, yeah, nice oaky chardonnay, um, <laughs> maybe white Russian. There you go. <laughs> anyway, David C championed the scene with Piat Dor in Jaws, uh, but that didn't. He didn't really get much support on that one, did he? <laughs> he didn't get any support. Sorry, I don't know David. About that, he was yeah. obviously a massive Jaws fan, and and we'll have to rewatch to see if we spot. No. But it doesn't strike me as anything out of the ordinary, given the kind of fashion that was in. Uh, you know, remember the tight shorts yeah. and the kind of it yeah, was yeah, 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 yeah. yeah Jaws. Yeah. It was all about that sort of era, wasn't it? Andrew C said, "I recall a nice Chianti being the right accompaniment to fava beans and liver." Thank you for not specifying the origin of the liver, Andrew. Um, and of course, there were a few other voices in sport: the Silence of the Lambs, which we mentioned with Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. It, it's often the case that it's. Is it me, or is the case that this wine tends to be the villain? It's the villain mm. who likes the wine or brings the wine. It's often the case. We need more wine heroes. Interesting, because apparently Do- Dominic P pointed out, didn't he, that 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 it was Amarone in the original book, but that, but they uh, changed yeah, yeah, it to yeah. Chianti did, um, for the film. This was Silence of the Lambs. Um, but yeah, you're right. But because it, Chianti thing. was better known. Than yeah, Amarone. yeah, yeah. People yeah, might not yeah, know Amarone. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, what else have we got? Um, sour grapes. Sour grapes. Yeah. I think William brought that in. You know, he said given so many scenes feature Tondonia. Um, and there were quite a few supporters for that, weren't there? There were, there were there? actually, yes. Yeah, Carrie yeah, yeah. Awesome. And you, Carrie did say it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. And then did you mean worst wine, worst wine movie? That would be Bottle Shock. So Peter McCombie coming straight in there. Uh, I watched it and thought that one would find less wood in a Chippendale factory, said Tim, which was... Depends what sort of Chippendale you're talking about, doesn't it? Not really? that kind of Chippendale. <laughs> oh, come on. Now, there was That's a shout-out really. for Lauren and Hardy by Richard S. Yeah, thanks, Again, Richard. Again, don't yeah, quite yeah, know about that. But, um, um, uh, and then there were a long list of supporters for Sideways, weren't oh, there? Oh, weren't they um, just? Weren't they Which, just? you know, um, on the basis of our entirely amateur straw poll, I think was probably the winner um, yeah. in terms of volume of responses. Uh, I laugh every time at the Merlot scene said Lynn, uh, while Mara said, in Italian it's un'ottima annata. Lovely movie. It sounds better. I think it's lovely in Italian, Mr. Richards. isn't it? Um, continuing the sideways loving, Ned P liked the bit where he drinks his nice wine in McDonald's from a paper cup. That's a good Patrick said, movie. brilliant. Cheval Blanc, 1961. Uh, also the beautiful romantic rant about Pinot Noir. Hilarious. Mm. I'm going to watch again now over Christmas. Yeah, so Patrick, we hope you enjoy that. Um, inspired by this, I think we might be doing some of the same. And Mark L, meanwhile, so, uh, he threw a spanner in the works. He did rather. Did. Didn't he? Yeah. he said wine and golf are two things. I'm not sure where the golf, but uh, where the connection came from. Wine and golf are two things that shouldn't have movies made about them. Mm. Let's look at the evidence: <laughs> Tin Cup and Sideways, and just say never again. Oh. And now this did lead on to discussions about Caddyshack and Happy Gilmore uh, on the golfing front. But and, and, but Mark did conclude, you know, sorry, but middle aged is way too baked into the wine brand oh. to make it a subject for Hollywood. Oh, that makes me feel unhappy. Anyway, <laughs> while while <laughs> while I feel unhappy, let's Stirring praise let's praise both Sideways and Happy Gilmore, uh, like Hardeep Sinkoli, mm. who noted that wine isn't the most fertile of film territory and. Weird that there are plenty of food films, but so few wine. Mm. Um, I think you then su- 
suggested this sounded like a project that needed doing. Um, and then yeah. he mentioned Babette's Feast, which features Claude Vougeot, 1845. I know, he pulled that one out of the bag. Thank you, Hardeep. Um, mm. you know, and, and yes, let's, let's work together. This could be something beautiful. Um, <laughs> Sideways is the clear winner, said uh, Mike M. Uh, if you want an absolute clunker about wine, watch A Good Year, a comedy written and directed <laughs> by two people who have absolutely no sense of humour. I don't uh, know who wrote it and directed it. I don't know. I don't know. But Tim Atkin, anyway. MW, agreed. He said, A Good Year is really bad, but Sukinuli is mm. not bad um, and features Jean-Marc Rouleau. There's some really good suggestions in her, I think, which we'll be looking out for. I'm I think yeah. we have a wine playlist, movie playlist, kind of right. lining up this holiday. Our kids are going to love Christmas, <laughs> they're aren't love they? <laughs> well, we just Let's had watch wine movies. Don't we? Uh, Chris Kelly uh, said, though, you know, I love a good year. That was the dream. Get a vineyard in France, entertain the French ladies. Ended up with a brewery in Bedfordshire. <laughs> <laughs> and he ended with a slapping face emoji. <laughs> Chris, it's not too bad. I think yeah. you're doing pretty well if, doing for fine. what it's worth. Ian also wanted to put a sheepish vote in for a good year, but only really because it starred Albert Finney and Marianne Cotillard. Understand the logic there. Um, mm. Nick B said, the Barolo boys, uh, wine history and a perspective on the ever-changing dynamism of our wonderful industry. Oh. Sounds like a strap line for the movie. Ratatouille it? treats yeah. flavour far more seriously than many films, com- commented uh, our colleague Simon Woods, and we'd agree. Uh, and not just Cheval Blanc but Mm. Chateau Latour as well Uh, Matt W mentioned the making of programme of Ratatouille Mm. when they apparently sent the whole production team to Cordon Bleu in Paris for six months training now that's the kind of film you want to work on isn't it it? it? yeah yeah. although I don't think that would be particularly easy Uh, another colleague of ours Peter Dean suggested dial a deadly number uh, an episode of the original Avengers apparently Um, and and, and he said uh, what happens in it is that Steed uh, wins a blind wine tasting competition where he identifies the row of vines the wine was made from Uh, you ever done that? Uh, no. No, neither have I. I could honest. do it for a film, I'm sure. Yeah, well, anyway, this, this, this apparently in the film, <laughs> film causes the villain's monocle to fall out. There we go. <laughs> Just, Nobody, we don't wear I enough monocles, it, I want to do see we, it these for days. that moment. Uh, it also has a great wine tasting in, in a cab between Steed and Emma Peel. Um, but again, th- then he went on to say, he, he suggested The Jerk, uh, the movie, with, famous movie with Steve Martin, when uh, Steve's drinking Latour 66, but asking for a younger vintage because he thinks the restaurant's palming him off with old rubbish, which is really funny. You, you, just, you just called him Steve there, didn't you? Like he was your Me best mate. Steve. Best mate. Lawrence P, meanwhile, said, just been watching The Sopranos. All they seem to drink is Rufino Chianti, gotta get some. Now... Mm. Lawrence, don't be led by the mob- mobsters. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think a good Chianti is undeniably a pleasure, a but you know, slope, Lawrence. Just careful, be careful there. there. Steady, uh, steady. Daphne put forward Mondovino uh, and did get a bit, a fair bit of support with that one. Uh, you know, the documentary on the globalisation of wine, which mm-hmm. uh, made a bit of a splash. Uh, this is one for you, really. Uh, Nyan introduced some levity to the discussion by <laughs> nailing his colours to the mast with The Simpsons Without a Doubt. Here we go, mm. Peter Richards. Uh, the clip where Latour is mentioned, as well as an indifferent Rosan Segler. Mm. Uh, Nayan added, uh, when I visited Rosan Segler a few years ago, I happened to mention that they were one of two two Bordeaux Chateau name-checked in The Simpsons. They were rather nonplussed when I forwarded that clip. I'm not surprised if anyone's seen it. Do they have The Simpsons in France? They must have, um, surely. Sure, yes, they do, actually, funny enough. And we can just barely come on to that. So, so from, from Mullineau in South Africa, hi, guys. Um, they said, there are so many bad wine movies, it's not even funny. So, you know, that really should have been the question we asked as well. What's yeah, your worst probably. wine Probably, maybe that's the next one, movie? isn't it? But um, anyway, they carried on. Um, they might be enjoyable in a guilty pleasure kind of way, but it's hard to get over the wine inaccuracies, such as the boiling fermentation <laughs> in a good year and the Burgundian Pinot Noir in inverted commas, in claret bottles in 
Paris Wine and Romance. Paris uh, Wine and Romance, and, that famous they, film. Yeah, then they added, uh, we almost forgot Crepes of Wrath episode of The Simpsons, where Bart is an exchange student in France and has to make wine. And I have to, I have to admit here to losing a lot of time going down a rabbit hole watching some of this episode. It's absolutely brilliant. It's one of the first series episodes, mm. um, and which where Bart does an exchange to France, mm. uh, where they force him to make yeah, wine yeah. adulterated with This was with hard antifreeze. research for you, this wasn't was, it? This was uh, really important <laughs> research. Uh, but what is great... So they forced him to make wine they, out they of antifreeze. They forced him to make wine with, you know, with antifreeze, so it's adulterated. But then Bart, he's, he's basically been kidnapped. They're, they're abusing him. They're, they're putting him into servitude. And he goes to find a French policeman and he reports the crime that he's been sort of abducted and abused. And the policeman doesn't really take much notice. And then he reports the crime of adulterating the wine with antifreeze. And at that point, the policeman sort of jumps into action and says, oh, this is the proper crime. Uh, it was, yeah. Anyway, very funny uh, episode. Well worth checking out. If you hadn't guessed, Peter's quite quite a Simpsons fan. Mm. <laughs> so, so you know, I think there's, there, there could be something in the top 10 wine moments in The Simpsons. Let's get on to that. Come yeah, on. but let's move I on. I want to hear that. Uh, with Nail and I was cited by many, including Chris W, who forwarded the clip of what must be the only incidence, I think, in film history of an entire dialogue between three characters being made mm. up purely of the word sherry. 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 Anyway, uh, Siab said, uh, worth reading Dorothy L. Sayers' Montague Egg Stories, the wine merchant mm. who solves crimes. Didn't know about that. No. Uh, and the bibulous business of a matter of taste where spies are exposed in a blind tasting. Now, a couple of people noted the Orson Welles commercials for Paul Masson. Do you remember those? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> California Champagne. And there are some great, great outtakes of those on where, YouTube. Where the great Mr. Wells is slightly worse for wear. Uh, Robin <laughs> L. suggested, and we have to pronounce this, La Grande Vadrouille. Um, he said, I've had the DVD for ages, but only watched it recently for the first time. Hilarious British French comedy with amazing mm. scenes at the old Hospice de Bone and Merceau. I, uh, I really want to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, just it. one or two more. Charles T, Ed Norton's character in 25th Hour, Spike Lee, 2002. Tony Plonk had some funny moments in it. I did watch a bit of that. It was quite funny. <sighs> You've really done your research, haven't you? Everybody's <laughs> just giving you an excuse to watch movies, haven't they, in The Simpsons. Uh, Benjamin S recommended The Street of Santa Victoria. Victoria, 1969. How would you hide 1,184,611 bottles of wine from the Nazis? Okay, no I think it's the secret of Santa Vittoria, actually. But mm. um, Tony what V. Did I say? Victoria, uh, you said the street. The street? Did the I? street is I can't even I read. Uh, Tori V uh, picked out the scene in Parent Trap, where, do you remember that one? Where oh, precocious yes. 12-year-old Lindsay Lohan She's very says, good if this. you ask me, the bouquet is a little too robust for a Merlot, but then again, I prefer, uh, I'm partial to the softer California grape. Lover, um, lover. Uh, actually really enjoyed Uncorked on Netflix, Vino on Lino, as many have said there are so many bad wine-related movies, so this was a surprise. I don't yeah. know who that was, but somebody... Mm. Uh, so Lee Evans, well, it's from Vino Online. Oh, uh, I see. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So Lee Evans said, uncorked, worthy of committing some time to it, makes you consider diversity in the wine business too. Mike N was also a fan of Uncorked and added Somme was good too. Mm. Um, yeah, we, we, one we had on our list. Uh, David G summed up well by recommending Mondovino. Uh, Bottle Shot was fun, but largely fiction. Sideways was entertaining, but really a buddy movie. Frankly, someone needs to make a great wine movie. 
A good point to end on. Mm. Uh, we are available for hire. <laughs> yeah, we are indeed. So, at least, uh, you know, at the very least, hopefully, some ideas for some good festive viewing there or re watching of the classics, which is always good to do at uh, Christmas time, isn't it? Um, always with wine as the common theme. Um, you know, we'll certainly be doing a bit of that ourselves, I, I think hope. we might. Uh, do get in touch to let us know if we've missed out or overlooked any key wine movies or key wine moments in movies or your mm. favourites, perhaps. Uh, you can contact us via social media or if you want to star on the show then leave us a message via the magic of speak pipe it's very easy to do and the link is on our site susieandpeter.com yeah now if you like what you've heard please do leave us a positive rating and review on your audio platform of choice it really does help uh, and we massively appreciate it and of course if you haven't done so already please do hit that subscribe button uh, it's all for free and it means you just get the latest episodes forwarded directly for your attention thanks to matt crafton of chateau montalina and thank you as ever for listening until Until next time, cheers.